Well, we continue our series in Paul's letter to the Colossians, this young church in Colossae. And what's the message so far? Well, the message so far is very simple. It's turn your eyes upon Jesus. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. When the sun rises, uh, the light, it dazzles, and we're temporarily blinded. But when we see Jesus, yes, the light dazzles, but we're not blinded. In fact, we can say, now I see. And by his light, I see everything else. So what Paul is doing in this, in this letter um, is setting before us the surpassing beauty and majesty of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, last time we looked at chapter 2 and verses 8 to 14. And uh, quite uh, exacting verses, quite tricky, the circumcision of Christ, all of those things. And... Um, if you missed it, uh, do catch up with it. And if you think, oh, I wasn't quite sure what was said last time, well, listen to it again. And always, always, always come and chat if there's anything you felt wasn't clear and you'd like to go over. But today we're going to just do one verse. Sometimes when we go through series, it's good, as it were, to sink down uh, a mine shaft and to really get to the, the seam of gold of treasure that's at the bottom of that shaft. So today we're just going to do one Verse, chapter 2 and verse 15. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. God in Christ, we're told, has won a great victory over the demonic rulers and powers and over Satan himself. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. What's the imagery that Paul is drawing upon. Well, you're a Roman general, and in some far-flung corner of the Roman Empire, you've won, a, you've won a great victory. Wonderful. But, of course, there's no modern media. Uh, nobody's there to record your victory. Um, how do you announce your triumph? Well, uh, you'd be given a victory parade through a city, may even be through the streets of Rome itself, and there you would parade, you'd be in a, in a mighty chariot, everyone could see you, and you'd have a crown of laurel, and it would be a parade, it would be a procession in which you'd display the spoils of your victory, including a line of prisoners bedraggled in chains, and at the end of that line, and most of all, the defeated king himself. And at the climax of the celebrations, the defeated king would be executed. So you'd disarmed your foe. You'd stripped him of his power. You had put him to an open shame. You displayed for all to see your triumph, your victory. That's why it was called, you were granted the right of, of triumph. And you've defeated your foe, and his humiliation is total. So it's a very arresting picture, isn't it? And not difficult to think about. That's the picture. Of course, Paul now applies it in a different way. Who's the victor here? Who's the one who is mighty in battle? Who's defeated the foe? And of course, the answer is the Lord Jesus Christ. And who is the foe? Well, we're told... There are rulers and authorities. There is the visible and the outward, but it's the, 
what Paul, what, uh, Paul is getting at is the, is the invisible ones that lie behind the visible powers and authorities. He's speaking of Satan and his legions. So that's the picture we've got. hope it's in your mind, because now we've got three points as we go through these things. So point number one, we'll call no way out. And we're going to go back to the Garden of Eden. Um, it's funny, isn't it? You, you have a children's talk and happens to time with what you're preaching. It looks like, you know, wonderful planning and design. It's not that at all. It's just the way the Lord has organized it. Adam. Adam was created in the image of God. He was God's king. He was God's ruler. He was to rule in God's name, in God's image, to God's glory, to rule over everything that God had made. Now, how far did that rule extend? Well, Psalm 8, and it's quoted again in Hebrews chapter 2, Psalm 8 says, You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. So Adam's rule was was to be all-embracing, all-encompassing. In fact, even, Hebrews 1 and 2, even the angelic world was to be under Adam's feet. But of course, someone's against it. There's this great angelic potentate. We've been thinking about this. We've been going through the evening series in, in Genesis. And this great angelic potentate, when he sees this upstart made from the mud who is going to rule over him, he rebels. Genesis chapter 3. He grabs his moment. And of course, this, uh, this great angelic potentate is Satan himself. Genesis 3 is his moment. And he appears to succeed. As you read it, Adam and Eve, they turn against each other. And they together turn against God. He's now weaponized them in his rebellion. And Adam and Eve, far from reigning and ruling, they now fall under Satan's sway. Adam loses his crown. He and his descendants, Psalm 8, Hebrews 2, are now made a little lower than the angels. They listened to an angel when that angel spoke rebellion. And now, therefore, they've been put under his rule. They've been made a little lower than the angels. And Satan is now in charge. That's why the Bible calls him the God of this world. That's why 1 John chapter 5, we read, the whole world now lies under the power of the evil one. So the children of Adam, the human race, are now in Satan's thrall. They've been made a little lower than him. They are now in slavery to him. 2 Corinthians 4, he's blinded their eyes. So they don't understand, they don't see, they don't see what's really going on. John 8, Jesus says, their will, the human race, is to do what he desires. So they're not free. Slaves of Satan, that's why Jesus says of Satan, he was a murderer in the beginning. He's the father of lies. But it doesn't stop there. Because having sinned, Adam and his descendants are now under a death sentence. We spoke it to the children, didn't we? 
by the sweat of your face. You shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. Paul says when he writes the Romans, chapter 5, verse 12, Therefore just as sin came into the world through one man, that's Adam, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. So not just put under Satan's rule, but now there is this death sentence. The wages of sin is death. And of course, beyond death, what the Bible calls the second death, the punishment of hell. It doesn't even stop there, because... Adam and Eve are now banished. They're banished from the Garden of Eden, and they're banished into a cursed world. So chapter 3 of Genesis, verse 24, we read, God drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So Adam and Eve are now driven out of the garden. They're driven into a cursed world, and as they look back, what did they see? They saw fire. There's this flaming sword barring the way. They can't get back to paradise. Where uh, once they walked with God, now his wrath burns. It's very powerful, isn't it? What it's saying is saying, here's the great divorce between heaven and earth. Here's, here's the great divorce between God and humankind. And there's no way back. There's this flaming sword barring the way. Now God's wrath burns. And so the human race now locked into this world that's under the curse. Again, powerful things to think about. The curse. You know, put out of your head all sort of kind of magic-y things. When the Bible talks about curse, what's it saying? It's saying, well, where there should be light, there's now darkness. Where there should be life, there's now death, love, rejection, fellowship, loneliness, beauty, ashes. Where there should be joy, there's now sorrow. Where there should be peace, there's now enmity. Where there should be holiness, there's now sin. Where there should be reward, there's now punishment. We live under the curse. Made a little lower than the angels. Paul in Ephesians 2 says that we now follow the prince of the power of the air. Interesting language, isn't it? Why is there this herding instinct in the human race? Why are there these movements, philosophies, ideas, and everyone runs with them and believes them and are overtaken by them? Where does it come from? It's the prince of the power of the air. The spirit, it says, who now is at work in the disobedient children of Adam. What lies before us? Death. Beyond that, hell. It's as though we live under a dome. This world. And I can't get out of the dome. Whichever direction I move, I'm under the dome. And it's a dome that's under the control of the enemy of God, under the control of, of Satan. And he's the one who's in control of me. I'm, a, I'm his slave. He's blinded me, so I don't see it. But we're rebels against God. And we're slaves to sin. And the only way out of this dome is death. 
It's the only way I escape from this world. But it's not much of escape, is it? Because death, where does it lead? It leads to hell. And Hebrews chapter 2, we're told that Satan uses that fear of death to keep us in line. Behind the visible powers and authorities in this world is a satanic world. The, the invisible world. But how do the visible powers keep us in check? Well, they hold the ultimate sanctions, don't they, of death. And everyone obeys and doesn't step out of line. But the one who's really behind it is Satan himself. So no way out. We're in this dome under his control. I'm a slave to him. I'm a slave to sin. The only way out is death. But that's no way out because it leads to hell. And if Satan has us over a barrel, he appears to have God over a barrel. God created man to rule. Sin has come and wrecked the program. Why can't God just forgive us? I mean, why can't he just do that and kind of, you know, rewind it all? Because Satan, another name is the devil, which means the accuser, says to God, you can't just forgive. There's a law. They've broken the law. Justice demands, therefore, the full penalty of that law, the punishment of hell. So you can't just rewind things. You can't just let the guilty children of Adam go. They can't go unpunished. Where's the justice in that? You're supposed to be the God of justice. Justice is the foundation of your throne. So Satan has a handhold even in the character of God. So the usurper now wears the crown. This insurgency in the Garden of Eden, this, this guerrilla attack, if I can put it like that, it's now taken over. And the human race is now under Satan's sway. We're slaves to sin, we're slaves to Satan, we're at enmity with God. And now we're living under the dome in this cursed world, and I can't get out of it. I can't, where can I go? The only way I get out of it is death, but that's no escape because beyond death is the second death, hell. And there's no way out. So point number two, the promise. Will Satan have the last word? Is the human race doomed? Chapter, uh, cha sorry, question 19 in the Shorter Catechism asks this, what is the misery of that estate where into men fell. Okay? What, what, what have we fallen into? What was our fall? Comes back the answer. All mankind, by their fall, lost communion with God, are under his wrath and curse, and so made liable to all the miseries in this life, to death itself, and to the pains of hell forever. It's a very biting summary, isn't it, of, of where we're at. So is that it? That's it then, is it? Has Satan triumphed? Well, of course, the answer, <laughs> I hope you agree with this, the answer is no, no, no. Because even in the wreckage of Genesis chapter 3, God makes a promise. 
We spoke about it briefly with the children, didn't we? Here's the promise. God speaks to Satan. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. It says, God, he, someone is coming, a champion, a deliverer, someone who will undo what Satan has done. Someone who will restore the blessing of God. Someone who will recover Adam's fallen crown. Who will destroy Satan and all his works. And will restore humankind to their ancient destiny. Which is to rule. To rule at God's right hand. So someone is coming. And upon this promise hang all our hopes. And when he comes, it'll be the moment of crisis, the decisive battle between God's champion and the great usurper. And there will only be one victor. So the battle lines are drawn. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Someone is coming. And of course, in the fullness of time, he comes and he's born to a virgin whose name is Mary. He's the ultimate seed of the woman. It's a virgin birth. And yet this one is also the uncreated son of God. Back in Colossians, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. So the beloved son the second person of the Godhead. He comes into the dome. He comes into this world. And when he comes, he never ceases to be God, but he he becomes what he has not been. He becomes one of us. Human being, bone of our bone, flesh of our flesh. He becomes a man. Jesus, he comes into the dome. And he comes in the likeness of sinful flesh. He really does become one of us. Hebrews 2, he is therefore made a little lower than the angels. The maker of the angels becomes a little lower than the angels, which means living in this world, he will be subject to Satan's attacks. You see, that script that God wrote was written for a man. It's a man made in the image of God who is to rule Satan has come along and tried to tear up the script and rewrite it so that he's the one who rules. So if God is going to keep to the original script, it must be a man who recovers the crown. It must be a man who puts things right. It must be a man who again establishes the rule as God intended. A man crowned with glory and honor, ruling over the works of God's hands. Well, here is that man. But he's been made a little lower than the angels. So it means that throughout Jesus' ministry, he is assaulted by Satan and by Satan's legions. Satan dogs his steps. But Jesus never wavers. Each time Satan tests this new Adam, each time he seeks to drive a wedge between this Adam 
and the father, because he drove away between the first Adam and the father, each time he tries this time, he fails. This Adam's obedience is beautiful. It's perfect. He always trusts and obeys. His only ambition is ever, his only ambition is only ever to, to bring glory to God. And so unlike that first Adam, he does not sin. He always obeys. He's always in communion with God. And in the very teeth of temptation, he proves that he is worthy. And that's why you read in the Gospels, Satan leaves. Satan leaves. He tries, but gets nowhere. He leaves. It's like all these skirmishes going on. And each skirmish, Satan flees the field of battle. And that skirmish has been beaten. He can't find a way through. But now we come to the cross. Now we come to the decisive battle. The skirmishing is over. Here it is. This is it. This is the moment. And Satan himself enters Judas. He's now got, enlisted, one of the twelve, one of the inner circle. But not only does he enlist Judas, he enlists the whole human race, at least in microcosm, to destroy its only hope. Isn't that extraordinary? Here's the only hope for the human race, but such is Satan's power that he enlists the human race to destroy its only hope. And so there's Herod and Pilate. There are the Romans. There's the Jewish leadership. There's the whole world here, the nations gathering in microcosm. And when they come to arrest Jesus, what does he say? He says, this is your hour and the power of darkness. This is it. This is Satan's moment. And so Jesus is put to death. How is he put to death? What do they do to the Christ? Think about it. They parade him. Not through the streets of Rome, but through the streets of Jerusalem. They parade him through the streets of Jerusalem. It's very public, because here's the rebel king. Here's the defeated foe. They then take him to a place of public execution. What do they do? They strip him. Strip him naked and they nail him to a cross. And above him they write the accusation. Here's the rebel king. This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. And you see, as it were, behind what's going on visibly, what's really going on, here is Satan's victory parade. Here's Jesus disarmed. Stripped of his power, publicly put to shame. Whatever the earthly powers are doing, the Romans and the Jews, the reality behind it is that here are the demonic powers, the rulers and authorities, and they're displaying their triumph over God's champion, over the Christ. And to all appearances, Satan's victory is total. Because our champion is nailed to a cross. Jesus' humiliation and defeat is total. What can Jesus do? I'm sure in the darkness, Satan whispers to Jesus, despair and die. How now can he rescue his people? And with the death of the champion, 
with the death of the great Saviour, well, the human race and the world will be Satan's forever. And so in the darkness, the serpent, he bites. And Jesus' blood flows. And yet even then, in the agony and grief of the cross, this Adam doesn't abandon God. His trust and obedience has never been more wonderful. And you begin to look at this Adam, this Jesus, and you say, he really is worthy of the crown. But when all things seem to be Satan's, and he appears to have triumphed over this Christ, there's a jarring note. Because ringing from the cross, a loud voice, Jesus says, Tetelestai, it is finished. He says it with a loud voice. Everyone must hear this. It has about it a ring of triumph. It sounds like from the cross a cry of victory. But what I came to do, I have done. Finished. He shall bruise your head. Yes, but Jesus then dies. And a dead Jesus saves no one. He's as much a part of this cursed world, much a part of locked into the dome, as you and me and Satan appears to have won. But on the third day, at the coming of the light, Jesus rises from the dead. And he rises with a new sort of life, life that can never die, with a new body, no longer made of this cursed earth. And he rises with a new authority, no longer made a little lower than the angels, and with a new destination to God's very right hand, the very throne of God. A man has pioneered a way out of the dome. He's pioneered a way to the crown, to sit at God's right hand, to fulfill the plan, to fulfill that ancient destiny. To the right of the Hebrews says, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor. And it's this Adam, this Jesus, the last Adam, who is Lord of all. And all things are under his feet. And in that moment, Satan's plans are in ruin. At the cross, Satan did his worst. He struck at Jesus. Only to discover that he was striking at his heel. And that it was a heel that was being brought down on Satan's head. Because the word of God, the promise of God, way back there in the garden was, He shall bruise your head. 
you shall bruise his heel. And so the final image is not the triumph of Satan over man. The final image is of a man. In fact, it's of the ultimate humiliation for Satan. The final image is of a human foot stamping on the head of Satan. And we begin to realize that what appeared to be Satan's hour is in reality Christ's hour. So to point number three. The triumph of Christ. Do you see what Jesus has done? We were locked into this cursed world. No way out. The fallen children of Adam, under the sway of the evil one. But what has Christ done? He's unlocked the door and set us free. He's pioneered a way out. So Paul can write to the Colossians, chapter 1, verse 13, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness, from life under the dome, and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son. We were sinners, guilty sinners, under a death sentence. But what has Christ done? He's paid for my sins. In his blood. And with justice done, as we think think about this last Sunday, with justice done, with the debt paid, there's nothing to pay. Chapter 2, verse 13, having forgiven us all our trespasses by cancelling the record of debt that stood against us with his legal demands, he has set aside, this he has set aside, nailing it to the cross. And now the accuser, well, he can scream and shout all he likes. But the debt has been paid. Justice has been done. My sins have been punished. They're punished in another. So there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Do you remember life under the dome? What was the only way of our escape? It was by death. It's the only way you could get out. But then beyond that was hell. But what's happened? Again, Christ triumphed. United to Christ, he's the head, we're the body. United to Christ, when he died, I died. What about last week? The circumcision of Christ. So I've already escaped. I've already been put to death. (laughs) Satan has no more claim on me. I'm dead to my old master. I'm no longer under his sway. I'm no longer his servant, his slave. But more than that, Because I'm united to Christ, when he rose, I too have been raised. Raised to a new life. It's a new me. And soon I'll be clothed with a new body for God's new world. And again, Paul said that, hasn't he? Chapter 2, verse 11. In him you also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by the putting off of the body of flesh. We've been put to death by the circumcision of Christ. But we don't stay dead, having been buried with him in baptism, in which also you were raised with him through faith and the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God has made, uh, God made alive together with him. And more than that, I'm now reconciled to God. Paul has told us about that, hasn't he? He talked about reconciliation in chapter 1, making peace by the blood of his cross. 
So I've been set free from Satan's tyranny. I'm no longer his slave. He's no longer blinded me. I no longer just carry out his instructions. I've been set free, but not just to use my liberty as I please. I've been set free to love and worship and adore and serve this wonderful, wonderful Savior, champion, Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ. And He's the one who's done it all. And that's why when we come to chapter 2, verse 15, these are the sweetest words of all, aren't they? He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. When Jesus, was, when Jesus was paraded through the streets of Jerusalem, a prisoner, for all to see, a defeated, humiliated, when a Golgotha, what do they do? They, they stripped him naked, and then they crucified him. They put him to an open shame, left him to die, When they did all that, Jesus' humiliation was total. And to all appearances, Satan had triumphed. But now we see it from the other side, don't we? In a sense, we see what's really going on. That the great deceiver had deceived himself. Who would have thought it that the way to the crown was through the cross? The Christ's exaltation to the Father's right hand would come through humiliation. That the death of death would be through His death. And yes, Satan wounded the Son. But it's by that wounding that Jesus disarmed Satan's power. Stripped him bare. And put Satan to an open shame. One Suffering, bleeding, dying man triumphed over all the might of the demonic rulers and authorities. Isn't that wonderful? And more wonderful still, in a sense, is that Satan never saw it coming. He thought everything was his, everything stacked against Christ. The kingdom's theirs, mine for the taking forever. And so Christ came into the dome. He shared our ruin and has pioneered a way out of the dome so that we might share his triumph. And Jesus is Lord. It's he, a man, the last Adam who reigns at God's right hand. He's the one who's recovered the, the crown. And his kingdom will conquer all. And Satan and his kingdom will be vanquished the triumph of Christ. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Catch the drama. Having won a great victory at the cross, that victory is now announced to the heavenly realm. A great victory parade, a great procession with Christ himself, the victor, mighty in battle, 
the King of glory, and with him the spoils of war. You find this theme written all, the, all through Paul's letters. You'll find it in 1 Corinthians. You'll find it in Ephesians. You'll find it elsewhere. Christ the victor. And who's the spoils of war? We're the spoils of the victory. The redeemed. Ransomed, healed, restored, forgiven. God's people, Christ's people. He shall see the travail of his soul and be satisfied. We're the spoils of victory. And what of the foe? Can you see that great line of prisoners? All the ranks and legions, the demonic rulers and authorities, they've been disarmed, they've been put to shame, they've been stripped. Christ has triumphed over them. And what of their ruler? The serpent, the dragon, Satan, the devil, the accuser. He is a foe defeated and awaiting execution. When Christ ascended, we read, Hebrews 4, that Christ passed through the heavens. 1 Peter 3 fleshes it out even more. Think about it. He's passing through the heavens. What's going on? It's a victory parade. When they saw him go up at the ascension, it wasn't that somehow he he disappeared from their sight and there was just a door and he stepped through the door from our dimension into God's dimension. It wasn't like that. It was a great procession through the heavens, through the heavenly realms, because it's in the heavenly realms, Ephesians 1, where Satan and his minions have been operating. So he passes his great Victory parade through the heavens. Jesus, the mighty conqueror. His enemies have been routed. And as he passes, the shockwaves pulse through that demonic world. Because now they know their doom is writ. And now they know for them there is no way back. Now they know for them the great plan they have to rule forever has been broken and trashed and stamped upon. And the great architect of all this, Satan himself, he is awaiting execution. And so Jesus, he processes through the heavens. And he comes to the very gates of heaven itself. Those ancient doors. And at his coming, what do those ancient doors do? They lift up their heads. They stand up straight. And Psalm 24 takes up the account. Lift up your heads, O you gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory, the great victor, may come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, and the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. And it's the triumph, the triumph of the Lord Jesus Christ. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them 
in him. So what's the message? It's turn your eyes upon Jesus and never turn them away. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we stand amazed at this glorious victory that your Son has won and that the way to the crown was through the cross and that exaltation should come through humiliation and that the great dragon with seemingly limitless power should be overcome by one suffering, bleeding, dying man our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's wonderful in our eyes. Our God, we pray, by the help and might of your Spirit, that we might turn our eyes upon Jesus and never, ever look away. Because we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.